Well, holy shit, I actually managed to do it. After procrastinating for ages, I finally managed to produce an audiobook version of the Lunatic Fringe book. It's currently available on all Amazon sites, audible.com, and shortly on iTunes. And if you're the page-turning type, it's also, of course, still available in Kindle form, paperback, and uh, hardback on Amazon. Ten hours and ten years worth of Blue Skies Magazine's articles, all available to you right fucking now, including a few author's notes and even an apology or two. Enjoy. In a world... Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who's it? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world... Uh, hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so... Anyway, fuck yeah, pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously, you moron, we both do. Of course. I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, they'll let you swap it out for another size or model, or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot, the Crossfire 3 when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch, the JFX 2 if you're looking to up your new swoop game, the Leia as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast, or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So, the equipment is top-of-the-line kick-ass stuff, as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com, and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. 
The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah! Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, the internet bringing me yet another rock star. Please tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? It's good to be here. My name is Ben Nelson. I am a full-time skydiver and rigger and a full-time bum. That's basically what I'm doing. A full-time bum and skydiver? Nah, I'll tell you what, (laughs) skydivers and riggers in particular work too fucking hard to actually hold the title bum as well. Well, and, and to be fair, uh, riggers can make a little bit more money than the average skydiver. So we tend to be a little bit more snotty and snooty when it comes to, you know, we won't sleep in our car. We'll sleep in a hotel. <laughs> fair enough. I was uh, I was a pilot long enough on the road that uh, uh, I refused to do the back room sleeping bag bullshit. You're going to get me a hotel room if I'm flying your loads. <laughs> that always seemed fair. I, I, yeah, I mean, you got to treat the pilot well, right? <laughs> well, and the rigger. Yeah, and the, well, yeah, especially those two, especially if they're a pilot and a rigger. I mean, you're only supposed to abuse the jump staff. The rest of them, you know, they're 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 important, right? So, yeah. as I usually do with the podcast, I I jump people back to how they got into not necessarily just our sport, but into anything that uh, uh, normal society deems extreme. So, where did it all start for you? Man, so it started for me at a relatively young age. I'm from Anchorage, Alaska. That's where, that's where I'm from. All my family still lives in Alaska. When you live in Alaska, living itself can be extreme uh, <laughs> half the time. We, we used to joke that uh, it's extreme enough in the wintertime that, uh, that it can be pretty hectic. But when you turn five in Alaska, you either put on a pair of hockey skates or you put on a pair of skis. This was back before snowboard. And so I decided to put on skis. And so I grew up doing skiing, which I guess some people could consider to be extreme. Oh, yeah. And then I grew up, in, I grew up in a family that liked to do stuff outside. My dad was a climber. So I actually was a, a big wall and alpine climber for many, many years back oh, no in the shit. 90s. And so that's kind of how I got into being outside and doing the active stuff that got me to where I am today, for sure. Nice. So you, uh, you grew up skiing. What is the place out there? Alieska? Alaska, uh, there's a couple different places, obviously, and backcountry skiing in Alaska and heli skiing is really big as well. There's a lot of there's a lot of land to to ski. Sure. But yeah, Alaska is the one that's closest to Anchorage. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump, 35 minute drive from from downtown. Nice. And so uh, it was easy to to get done with school and hop in the car and drive down and do some night skiing and before uh, going back home to get up and do it all over again the next day. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's funny that you uh, uh, were kind of sideways about whether or not skiing could be considered extreme because fuck me, man, people drop like flies skiing. It it's, can be pretty extreme. It's skiing and snowmobiling. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the, I guess when I say extreme, I guess what I kind of mean, too, is mainstream. Sure. Because skiing, is, skiing has been mainstream for quite a while now. I mean, coming out of the 80s, rolling into the 90s. 
you can walk back in the nineties, you could walk into a bookstore and find three or four different skiing magazines. I would say that that would make it more mainstream. And so some people would say, Oh, it's not super extreme. It's more mainstream, but yeah, man, some of the extreme skiing that you see back home in Alaska, they did, they used to do some of the extreme skiing championships down there in Valdez, which is very, can be very dangerous. And yeah, man, a lot of people have gotten themselves hurt or killed for sure. But when it's a, when it's something like uh, you grow up with, it's hard to, it might be extreme for someone in Florida, but not very extreme for other people that grow up in the, in the areas where you can ski. Sure. I mean, I grew up in Northern California and skied Lake Tahoe my whole childhood and, and didn't consider skiing itself extreme again, for the same reason you just said you grew up with it until the first and only time I've ever been on a snowboard, which is also the only time I've ever knocked myself unconscious. And it had to be taken down the slope. Yeah. Well, I don't remember any of that. I only remember the second stupidest question a doctor has ever asked me, which was how long have you been unconscious? Oh my gosh. And you're like, I don't know. I was unconscious. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So uh, now tell me a little bit about the big wall climbing. Cause uh, I have a lot of friends that have done a massive amount of big wall climbing and it's always intrigued and scared the shit out of me. Really? Um, I guess it just depends on, on how, you know, like I said, if you grow up doing it, my dad, so my dad was a climber. Um, Mm. He was one of the first people to do a winter traverse of Denali back in the 60s. Oh, wow. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't summit, but they traversed it. And um, he, my family being originally from Minnesota, he came back from that trip and convinced my mom to move to Alaska. And that's how we actually ended up in Alaska. My oh, dad wow. was a, a climb, climber. And so, um, you know, I had all the old gear. You, you're playing around with dad's gear in the garage. He, you know, he doesn't really climb much, didn't really climb much anymore, but Next thing you know, you, you're out just climbing anywhere. In Alaska, you can practically throw a stone and find a cliff to climb. You know, mm. And then, you know, by about the mid-90s, you started seeing some more rock gyms starting to pop up. Anchorage got its first rock gym and then it got its second rock gym. And so, again, it was easy to get your friends after school, go over to the rock gym and start climbing. And then the, in the summer times, what are you going to do? You're going to be outside camping and hiking and doing all that other stuff. Sure. And then that, that just eventually morphed into doing bigger and bigger trips. And next thing you know, you're doing routes on El Cap and you're doing uh, climbs in, in Yosemite, um, some stuff in Northern Pakistan and a few other places like that. But um, yeah, when you grow up doing it, uh, it's a gradual thing. You know, it's not like you start off by going and doing a big wall. Sure. You're doing all kinds of smaller stuff for years. And then eventually you've built up the skill and the gear to go do some of the bigger, bigger things. Sure. In fact, that's kind of, that's kind of what got me into skydiving. You know, I, I had, um, by about the mid two thousands, yeah, we started to see more of the Shane McConkie base jumping stuff that was coming out, especially yeah. when it came to ski base jump. And I thought it was always it would always be neat to go back and do some base jumps on the climbs that I had done back in the 90s. Mm. And so that's kind of where I got this idea of like, man, I, re- I really want to maybe go back and do that. So sure. that steered steered me in the direction of skydiving. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't something that was really on my radar for for very long at that point in time. Well, you know, it's kind of funny that you say that uh, um, when big wall climbing actually entered my consciousness as far as being something that I thought was super amazing, it was because a, a group of guys came out from the valley um, and said they all wanted to learn how to skydive so that they could start flicking the stuff they were climbing in the valley. And none yeah. of us, you know, none of us instructors knew who the fuck these guys were, but it turned out they were the stone monkeys. This was Ivo yeah. Ninov and Nick Martinez and, I mean, uh, Ammon McNeely. We taught those guys how to skydive so that they could go on to become the yeah. badass base jumpers that they are. And then you find Otter out. Otter was probably in that mix. 
Yeah, I mean, well, Dean Potter was a skydiver on his own by then, but uh, that's the reason I knew who Dean Potter was when I did a little flying in Lodi, because I'm like, oh, dude, you're fucking, you're free base. You're that guy. Holy shit, you yeah. know? And it is. It was because of the climbing stuff, and and uh, I've always done the gym climbing and a little bit of outdoor sport, but the big wall stuff always scared me. Uh, so having these guys, you know, nervous on a skydive always used to crack me up because I'm like, <laughs> you guys can handle like three days of sheer terror, but a thirty second free fall is making you nervous. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't consider it sheer terror. I mean, when you're in the midst of it. You know, you, you learn to train your mind. You learn your body is already trained to do what you need to do. Now you got to train your mind to do it as well. And so, I mean, I think a lot, in a lot of ways, it's a, like non-skydivers looking at skydivers, skydivers. And they say, I don't know how you could ever do that. Well, after 12,000 skydives, uh, we've built our mind up to that. It's just something that we do every day. And, and sure. big walls were kind of the same way for me. You know, it's funny you mentioned the stone monkeys because I was actually kind of getting into that scene back when they were the stone masters. Okay. So there were the stone masters and then stone monkeys came along. And so I was kind of in that transitional period of time then. And it's funny when you look at the advancement of big wall climbing, you know, by the coming out of the eighties into the uh, early nineties, the thought of doing a climb on El Cap meant that you better be prepared for two days. Well, by the time Dean Potter rolled around, they were flashing that shit in, in two hours, Yep. you know? And so I was in that time, time frame where we were doing routes that are now being done in a couple hours. We were doing them in about 12 hours. Wow. Get up and be there by the, by before the sun, the sun came up and you were off and back to the, to get picking up some pizza by the end of the day. That's just epic, man. It really is. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll, uh, the climbing itself, uh, physically, yeah, you learn how to handle it. For me, it was always the thought of that exposure. Um, but yeah. a, again, what drew me to that was, uh, the scene so much, cause you could see this brotherhood of climbers that reminded me so much of a drop zone, you know, a proper drop zone where yeah. people have been there for a while. It's that sense of community, right? Yeah, for sure. Especially, especially when you're a new person in that new area, man, they just basically, they take you in under their wing and next thing you know, you've, uh, you've been there a day and you've got four new climbing partners that you just met. Sure. And uh, you go, end up going and doing some pretty epic shit. Well, to this day, I've still got Nick Martinez saying he's going to take me up El Cap. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, man. Hoping he never does. <laughs> oh, man, you would have a blast. You would have an absolute blast. I don't know about and, that, you know, man. And, and, you know, the, the ability to be in a place like uh, like Yosemite and be in a spot that tourists can't be at, you get a completely different perspective of the park than you would just driving through it for sure. That I couldn't disagree with at all. I mean, that's absolutely true. Uh, it's just like yeah. skydiving, right? I mean, it's the difference between looking out the window of the plane and getting out of the plane. Yeah, for sure. So speaking absolutely. of, how did you, uh, how did uh, skydiving get back on your radar when you're doing all this other stuff? So it was one of those things where, you know, I like to be outside and do, do all kinds of outside type activities. And, you know, by the end of the 90s, I'd done my first couple jumps in, the, in 90, I think it was 98. But it didn't, it didn't intrigue me and it didn't suck me in because I, I, I just don't think it was. So you think of skiing as being real mainstream, right? And then you think of climbing being a little bit more niche. Like as you move from skiing to climbing, the community is a lot more tighter and it's a lot smaller. In sure. the late 90s, move over to skydiving. It was a niche within a niche. And so it wasn't mainstream enough for me to really see how awesome skydiving was. And to mm. be fair, in the late 90s, you know, wingsuiting wasn't as big as it is today. Canopy progression isn't like it is today. And so really back then it was like, 
you were learning to skydive to go base jump, or you were skydiving just to jump out of the plane and have a few, have fun, but nobody ever considered themselves a skydiver. They considered themselves a climber or they considered themselves a skier that happened to go do those things. But, you know, it didn't, it didn't suck me in like skiing and climbing did partially because, you know, you could, like I said, you could walk into a bookstore and find two or three climbing magazines or two and three, four mainstream ski magazines. There was nothing on skydiving. Sure. And at that point in time, technology wise, um, you were lucky to find a VHS copy of someone's first skydive, <laughs> right? You know, you, YouTube didn't exist. The technology was such that it wasn't, it wasn't something where you would really see it would be. Uh, and a lot of skydivers will say that this was their inspiration is in, in Hollywood. You know, you'd see point break back in 92 or was it 92, 93. And the skydiving scene is the, like the first exposure anybody had to that type of activity. And, I know a lot of jumpers that that was the catalyst that caused them to want to go, want to go jump. Mine was initially wanting to base jump obviously. And then it just didn't really suck me in like, like it did later on. I actually probably took about a decade off from about 2000 to 2011. I didn't, I didn't jump at all. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, life gets in the way I uh, I'm trained as a, I was trained as a paramedic. So I was working in pre-hospital emergency medicine for many years and then working in occupational health and safety. And so once that kind of takes over, Next thing you know, I'm not skiing as much as I used to, and I'm not climbing as much as I used to. Plus, I live in Alaska. You know, the jump season in Alaska is not great. Right. And during the jump during the jump season, the weather may not be good the entire time. So, the the options of uh, for skydiving up north were not what what we what you would want them to be in order to stay current enough to actually make it worth your while. Sure. Sure. So. And then, of course, you know, once 2000, I want to say 2002, 2003 started rolling around, that's when you started to see more mainstream stuff, uh, videos coming out from, like I said, from Shane, like Shane McConkie, uh, JT Holmes, uh, all those guys were doing all the ski base jump. And it's like, man, that would be really awesome to do. Right. But you started to see more of those videos um, as time progressed and as technology progressed. And then shoot, by 2005, when YouTube came out, um, you didn't have to you didn't have to wait until someone brought one over to a party and threw it in the VHS machine. You could just go online and take a look at it. Sure. And uh, as it started to become more mainstream, I started to realize that uh, skydiving had a lot more to offer than just falling out of a plane or getting prepped for base jumping. Sure. All of a sudden, this weird thing called free flying came out. And all of a sudden, the wingsuit technology started getting to the point where they were shooting some pretty rad video. And then, uh, you know, canopy started to get smaller. And what's this swoop thing that I heard of? <laughs> Next thing you know, you're sitting there watching videos. And so for me, I, I uh, found myself in a position where I showed up. I got transferred to Houston, Texas, of all places, from Alaska. And I was single. I didn't know anybody. I couldn't ski. There was really nowhere to climb. And so the next thing you know, I'm realizing there's a big drop zone just uh, just south of Houston, Skydive Spaceland. And so next thing you know, I'm out at Skydive Spaceland and I think I've been logged, logging a thousand to twelve hundred jumps a year since 2011. That's fucking epic. And that was that... mostly because there was nothing else to do in Houston besides sure. drink and eat barbecue. <laughs> and I, and I'm not a football, I'm not a football fan. So there that threw me out of all the conversations with all everybody right. in Texas. So for sure. Well, it's, it's funny that you, uh, you mentioned, um, uh, point break. Cause I was just talking to uh, Jason Maletsky. I had him on the show and he's like, yeah, I'm a point break kid. And he was so am I. Yeah. Um, and I think the only reason that skydiving uh, sucked me in much quicker was um, I had uh, Paris Valley uh, very close to me where yeah. 
all the rock stars that were, you know, making chronicles and all these badass uh, videos were, and they were always running on a TV. So I was actually exposed yeah. to what was possible right away. So I was, you know, there when Zipser and Omar El Hijalan and all these guys were yeah. starting to do, and you're like, Oh my God, What's you know, that? <laughs> instant fucking hero worship with these guys, you know? And so I, I had that input that you didn't have, or I could have seen it going the same way. For sure. Absolutely. For sure. And then by the time we get to that point, like I said, when YouTube came out, uh, all you really had to do is just type in skydiving and you'd find something cool that you didn't know existed ever before. And now you're like, man, I really want to go do that. Sure. And so it was, it was an eye-opening experience. And then of course, by the time I got to Spaceland and started jumping there, um, hell, it was a big deal that you could land and plug in your video camera and watch it, watch it on the TV five minutes after you landed. Yeah. That was something that wasn't that big. Of course, those were the side-mounted Sony cameras that still that were still kind of dumb. But yeah. you know, GoPros were becoming more prevalent. And next thing you know, anybody can record themselves jumping out of an airplane and doing doing rad shit. So um, that's that's when it really started to suck me in. Plus, so, I had nothing better to do with my life. <laughs> bro, fair enough. Well, but so you're doing the paramedic thing, which in itself is its own fucking extreme sport. I mean, holy shit! That you've got to have yeah. some pretty wild experiences from stuff like that. Um, especially, especially being in Alaska, man. I mean, um, so by the time I was getting out, I was doing a lot of remote medical stuff, basically mm. working about 300 miles north of, north of the Arctic circle up on a place called the North slope. Those are where you get the really extreme cold temperatures, you know, the 70 degree below zero wind chill type situations. And as a, as a paramedic, you know, most, most paramedics are trained for city, city type operations. So you're going to be with a patient for maybe 12 to 15 minutes while you're transporting them and stabilizing them working out in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, you might be with a patient for two days while you're weathered wow. in. And so the experience of, um, of, of that, yeah, it, it was a, it was like an extreme sport in some, in some cases for sure. Now the slope, but that's, uh, that's the drilling. Yeah. Yeah. So the North slope is, uh, one of the main drilling operations areas for a, a couple of the major pr- producers. BP was up there at the time when I was there, uh, I want to say Arco was there for a while, ConocoPhillips type type scenarios. It's just just slightly farther south than Barrow, which is the farthest north in the continental United States you can get, which is right there. Uh, you're right there on the Arctic Ocean. So what a fucking wild so place to a, be. Yeah, it is pretty wild, especially when you consider you know Alaska. So Alaska's so so big. I mean, two and a half times the size of Texas, right? Yep. I know, I know Texans like to say everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> I used to like, I used to like to tell everybody in Texas when I met him, Oh, you're from Alaska. I was like, yeah, do you know what you get when you divide Alaska into two? You get Texas being the third largest state. They always hated that. <laughs> but with, with the size, with the size comes a diversity that you don't see in many states. So you were talking, we were talking earlier before we started recording about you being down in Juneau. Yeah. Juneau is very like a, almost like a rainforesty type situation. Obviously they get snow in the wintertime. You move up to central Alaska, it starts to get more mountainous. By the time you get to central Alaska, you hit the Alaska range and it's some, it's the tallest peaks in the, in the country. Yeah. And, um, and then once you get above the Brooks range, they call it the slope because the Brooks Range Mountains come down to a spot, and then from that spot all the way to the Arctic Ocean, it's just flat, and it's a gentle slope all the way to the water. <laughs> and so you'll land in the north slope of Alaska, and on a clear day, you can see in any direction as far as the eye can see, and it's just completely flat. There's no forest. There's no trees. There's no mountains. It's just flat. And then um, you know, then you see polar bears, and you see caribou, and you see all these different creatures. And it was, a, it was an experience uh, for sure. 
It had to be. I mean, it will especially going up there when your line of work is to deal with people who've seen the worst of it. I mean, yeah. that's that's in itself. I mean, that takes a, a special mentality to be able to cope with people in that type of situation regardless. But to be in the situation that most likely is what got them there as well. So you're not just taking yeah, care sure. of somebody else. You're making sure you don't end up in the same boat as them. Oh, absolutely. That was actually kind of my transition. So I, I transitioned out of pre-hospital emergency medicine into occupational health and safety. And I think at the time, the people that, that were hiring me to do that type of work kind of thought that those things coincided. And they really don't when you think about it. Pre-hospital emergency medicine is about cleaning up after the fact, right? And occupational health and safety is about preventing those things from happening in the first place. Sure. So it, it was a natural natural transition for me to come out of that um, pre-hospital emergency medical mentality into occupational health and safety, because I was able to, you know, present to the people that I worked with, like, these are the things that can happen. Let me show you, like, let me tell you what can happen if, if we don't take care of this up front. And so it was a very, it was a very natural transition for me to, to make that move. Well, an occupational health and safety must have been a, a made the transition into becoming a skydiver very easy for you in being able to identify potential hazards and start to think safety orientation instead, you know, yeah. especially when you're starting out with a sport that can be deadly. Yeah, for sure. You know, risk assessment is something that we do on a daily basis, just getting out of bed and driving our car and doing all the things that we do. We have a certain amount of risk that we're willing to take. Some people are willing to drive down the road with their knees on their steering wheel, eating a hamburger with the radio cranked up and the phone in their hand and other people aren't. Um, but when you make when you start looking at that type of stuff in regards to skydiving, certainly risk assessment, risk mitigation uh, is one of those things that uh, made makes it a lot easier, at least for me to see how safe skydiving actually is, at least modern day skydiving actually is. Sure, sure. Now, how did your transition go into? I mean, I know you said you started jumping in uh, Houston basically to kill time because there wasn't much else to do. But obviously, yeah. at some point, it started getting to be proper serious if you're cranking out a thousand to twelve hundred jumps. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, after a while, you start. That that was really the mainstream part of it for me when skydiving started to become more mainstream, and you could see what was going on. You know, talking about climbing back in the nineties. You could go find, you know, Stone Masters 5 or anything that Don Osmond was doing in the day. You could get a video of it and watch it. Well, by the time, you know, we're talking, this is about 2012, 2013, 2014. We were starting to see some of the super rad videos coming out of places like Dubai, right? And now you're starting to be able to see what can be done. And next thing you know, you're like talking to your buddies. You're like, let's go try that. We could probably <laughs> give that a shot. Right. Um, that might be when the risk assessment phase in my skydiving career was not where it is today, <laughs> but you don't know what you don't know in some cases. Right. Um, but you, you, you know, you go out with friends and you try something and the next, thing you know, it works and you're like, holy shit, that worked. Let's go try this. And then you're doing something else. And the next thing you know, you're, Hey, I see they're doing a rad camp in Arizona, you know, Arizona Arsenal's throwing on a rad camp. I'm going to go out there and check that out. So next thing you know, I'm leaving Houston and I'm going to Arizona and I'm going to California and Paris Valley popping down to Sebastian during, uh, during, uh, 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 invasion. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so next thing you know, you're meeting friends, you're making friends, you're doing new stuff and you're looking, what can I do to help, you know, push myself. And in some cases it was pretty awesome to be around and be in positions where we actually were pushing the sport in, a, in different directions that hadn't gone yet. And to be a part of it on the ground level was a pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting time for sure. Oh, it had to be. I mean, um, especially as 
you you start out in the sport when you're you're seeing it kind of just hit the ground running uh and to be able to see this amazing transition over the decade that you kind of took off come back to it and seeing where it's gone yeah. in that in that time off and then all of a sudden find yourself pushing it in even new directions i mean how cool is that it's, it was absolutely amazing you know and i never expected to be in those positions but you know when you jump when you jump as much as you do uh, it turns into a situation where just that's just a natural direction that it ends up taking. Sure. Now you, know, I, I you see you see quite a few people getting in and they they do a few jumps and it's fun and they it's all fine and good and then after about a year they trickle out and they go back to whatever it is they want to do or they move on to something else. You know, we're seeing a lot of people nowadays getting into skydiving just the base jump or getting into skydiving and after a year or two they're trickling over to paragliding. Sure. Um, or other activities like that, but um, yeah. Well, and that's all good. I mean, uh, I've, I'm a firmly of the opinion once a skydiver, always a skydiver, just because of the community. I mean, I know people that haven't jumped in 20 years that are still very active members of the skydiving community because you form yeah. such amazing bonds with people so quickly. I mean, it's it's that foxhole friendship mentality, right? You put yourself through extreme situations with people even just a few times and you figure out who that person is on a fundamental level that you don't usually get to do with people. Oh, absolutely. For sure. When, when you're dealing in situations uh, that can be considered extreme, you build, it's almost like a, a brothership that's, you know, they say brother of brotherships forged in battle or brotherships forged oh. in common commonality or things like that. Yeah, I can absolutely, I can absolutely see that. Absolutely. Well, and then you you start taking those core groups and and pushing it in all these different directions. I mean, I know you've got uh, big stuff coming up um, that is all kind of forwarding things and pushing into new directions and doing all these amazing trips and stuff. I mean, how did all that come about? So there came a point in time, uh, I think it was right around 2016 where I was uh, getting out of working in the oil industry and I was considering leaving Texas. And um, I was approached by the owner of the drop zone, Stephen, Steve Boyd senior. And he asked if I would be willing to come work as the manager at Skydive Spaceline Houston. And I hadn't really considered working in skydiving at that point. You know, I'd been a tandem instructor for a while, but, you know, a tandem instructor in the sense that I can now go to a bar and pick up a girl and be like, yeah, I'll take you skydiving, right? <laughs> yep. I was current enough to be safe, current enough to, to get laid, right? <laughs> but, uh, but I wouldn't consider myself a professional skydiver at that point in time. I've uh, been on a few world records and things like that, but it wasn't my job. It was just a hobby that I did on the side, and I happened to have some, some good times doing it. So to making the transition into a full-time working skydiver, well, was that opportunity came and I, I decided to take it. After about a year, he asked me to move to skydive at Spaceland Dallas because he started acquiring more Spaceland drop zones. I think they're at five now. Mm. And I spent, about, I spent about four years, five years in Dallas running the operations up there as the drop zone manager. And while I was there, I met a very interesting guy named Ryan Parrott. Uh, everyone calls him Birdman. He's a former Navy SEAL, uh, former sniper, and he runs a charity called the Bird's Eye View Project. And through the Bird's Eye View Project and through another company of his called American Extreme, they raise money for veterans type services and things like that. And I met him at Skydive Spaceland Dallas. He was doing something called the Bomb Squad, where if he had people that raised a certain amount of money for the foundation or for the charity, he would bring them out to the drop zone and we would take them on uh, discounted tandems and things like that. Um, and so he would come out on a Tuesday and bring a hundred people. And so, so I started hanging out more with him, you know, because he was putting these things on and, um, and as time progressed, you know, he's, 
He's done a couple other charity events. We did an excellent charity event where we got to take a veteran from each war, starting from World War II to present times oh, wow. on a tandem. We videoed it, put it all together, turned it into a little bit of a documentary. And so um, that's kind of how I got involved with what we're going to be doing here next month. But it's all been to raise funds for different veterans, charities and veterans organizations uh, uh, through that Bird's Eye View project and through Ryan Parrott. I mean, that's absolutely epic. And, and uh, um it's it's something that I've seen quite a lot in my years of skydiving. Skydivers tend to use this amazing platform we have to help out a lot of different groups. And I've always seen incredible stuff done for veterans groups. And it's nice to see it continue on, especially at that level. I mean, bringing out 100 people because they raise so much money for veterans groups, that's epic. Yeah, yeah you know, it, it's funny to me because uh, when you look at skydiving, I think skydiving is very veteran centric in the sense sure. that you you meet a lot of veterans that skydive. A lot of them learned how to skydive in the military, and now they just happen to to be uh, you know in, in the civilian life, but they still skydive. When I was a manager at Skydive Spaceland Dallas, I probably had I want to say half my staff was probably veterans or currently uh, serving military members. Wow! So skydiving military stuff kind of go hand in hand, I sure. think. And so it, ma- it makes sense that that's something that we can use to, to help progress some of these projects. Sure. Well, I mean, I, 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 not to disparage some skydivers, but the military has such an amazing work ethic that they make fantastic staff. And then yeah. there's the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. You know, that's very true. I will say that the military staff I had or ex-military staff I had were definitely more squared away than, than most. Squared away. That's something I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely squared away. Uh, I mean, it's again, not to talk shit about the skydivers that weren't military. I know a lot of really, really hardworking skydivers that have never been anywhere near the military because it interfered with their, you know, their weed consumption. (laughs) (laughs) But but still amazing jumpers in their own right. But uh, um, I've always said, especially as a, a tandem or an AFF instructor, you'd get a military guy that would come out to do a first jump. And there was no question, man. That guy just fucking did what you said. And it was, yeah, it was they amazing. Exactly what you told me to do. Oh, oh yeah, man. <laughs> Once they've got the script, man, they're good to go. Now, how was it? Uh, how was it transitioning into managing a drop zone? I mean, I've, I've seen it done. Um, I, I think I kind of know what goes into it, but it never looked like that much fun to me. Um, man, uh, pun intended. It has its ups and downs being a manager of a drop zone. Um, <laughs> I would say that, yeah, when you start out, it probably has way more ups than downs. And, and to be honest, by the time I was ready to leave uh, Dallas, I think I was kind of in one of those downward slumps. Super love Spaceland. Spaceland's an awesome place to be. But there did, there did come a point in time when, when your work, your hobby becomes your work. Eh, you know, you finally have a day off and it's a beautiful day, perfect for jumping, and you don't want to skydive. Yep. That's when you kind of know that, man, eh, maybe I need to take a step back from being in this position where, you know, it's a 364 day a year drop zone and, um, and I'm not able to go do some of the other stuff that I want to do. And, uh, it was very good to be there and gain that knowledge and gain that experience. Um, and then now I'll take that experience and go do other things. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, I definitely feel you on the getting to that point where you've got that perfect day and no desire to go. And I've hit that both as a jumper and as a pilot where I've got that day off. And the last thing in the world I want to do is hear a turbine spinning and go out to the yeah. drop zone. You know, it's no, that's, I just don't have it in me. 
I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. Um, I think it uh, it makes you take a step back and reevaluate. So when you do go back, you've gone back with a purpose. Uh, you know, whether it's yeah. just to go have fun or or for whatever reason, you've gone back with a purpose instead of just. Oh fuck! It's a day off. I better go jump. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's funny. It's funny because uh, you know I've been helping out up at Skydive Oregon, which is really I, I live in the Pacific Northwest now, and so I live in a place that's about four or five hours from drop zones. Mm. So I'm far enough away. I'm far enough away from it, but I am able to go up, say Friday morning, drive up to to towards Portland, spend three or four days doing tandems, and not being a manager. Sure. It's a completely different night and game type situation. Like I leave there at the end of the weekend, totally stoked. Like my, my fuel has been filled up and I'm ready to go out and do other things. I don't have to worry about anything else going around. I don't have to go talk to that guy about his bad landing. I just, I'm there. I do my thing. I have fun with people and I, and I bounce out and it's a different, it's fun being a fun jumper again, I guess is the best way to say it. I completely agree, man. I hadn't jumped for a few years and was out. Uh, I had taken the gig in Dubai and was flying there. And and I don't think I jumped in about three years. And to the point where no one actually knew me there as a jumper, I would have people. So have you ever jumped? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've jumped once or twice. And then my buddy, uh, Junior, David Junior Ludwig, um, during yeah. a boogie, we had the day off. And he's like, dude, you want to go make a jump? And I fucking got butterflies. I'm like, oh, you mean skydive? Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit, I can do that. And, and at the time, Skydive Dubai staff didn't pay for jumps. So I had unlimited skydives on days off. Yeah, no reason I, not to. Yeah. yeah, I never took advantage of it. And I went out and did that jump and, and landed and went, oh, that's why I that's started why. all this. <laughs> and just got to go be a fun jumper with an expired tandem rating. So I'm not chucking drugs. I'm just going and doing my thing. And it was yeah. a, it was a whole new chapter in skydiving, which was amazing. Yeah. For me, it was, I hadn't been able to do some of the skydiving that I wanted to do. I've been doing a lot of XRW um, leading up to me leaving uh, to Dallas. But even as a manager, you don't really have the time on a Saturday when you've got the wingsuit talent out there to go do what you want to do. But I'm up in, I'm up at skydive Oregon. I think it was my second weekend helping them out. And I went and did a, an XRW jump. And I, as I'm coming into land, you're physically giggling to yourself. <laughs> And then you land and you're like picking up your gear and you're like just giggling like a child yep. as you walk across the room. You're like, oh man, that was so fun. That that was for me was like the, oh yeah, this is what it feels to be like a fun jumper again. Yeah, it's nice, man. It, it really is. And it just kind of, uh, it reminds you, it's that tap on the shoulder go, that goes, hey, this, all the other bullshit, that doesn't matter. This is, this is why yeah. you got into it in the first place. And then, of course, luckily for me, uh, having started the podcast, God, three and a half years ago now, every time I get to sit down and have a conversation with another jumper who's either still got that stoke or they're finding it again, or I, I did an interview with a guy a while back that had just started jumping. I think he wasn't even with his A license, had quit his job, bought an <laughs> RV and was like, I'm fucking doing it. And now I'm keeping up with him on social media and he's got God knows how many jumps he's hit his like 10th yep. drop zone is just love and life. So I kind of get that stoked back, just having the conversations, which is amazing. Yeah. It's hard sometimes to remember where that we all started somewhere. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, coming in from your first couple jumps, you're giggling. I was giggling the same way I was giggling on jump number 12,000 coming amazing. in from an XRW jump. There's and not too many. Not too many sports yeah. you can get that from. Yeah, for sure. There really aren't. Yeah. Now, tell me about this big project you got coming up next month. So we are going to, we're doing what's called a human performance project. 
Um, this has been in the works for, uh, shoot, probably since 2000, maybe 18 is when I first had the conversation, 19, about uh, this project. And so it's been a long time coming, but we really started in earnest this last year doing the training and getting the, the stuff need, we go, need to go do this trip. The plan for this uh, trip is we're going to be hitting every seven, all seven continents. We're going to be doing a skydive or a base jump. We're going to be doing uh, a marathon on each continent. We're going to be doing a swim, which isn't really a swim, but we're jumping in the water. It's more symbolic than anything else. Uh, and we're trying to do it all in seven days. And I know there was a, a group that just went and did something very similar to ours this last week. Um, they were just doing the jumps. And so uh, it's been fun watching their progress. Mm. But we're going to be doing that sometime around mid-February. Uh, I think on the 15th is when we're scheduled to leave. So it's, uh, it's been a challenging experience as we've been planning for it. But uh, it, I think the rewards will pay off in the end, and it's going to be a challenging trip, but uh, certainly going to be uh, one for the one for the books. I mean, a jump, a marathon, and a and a dip everywhere you go. Damn, that's that's ambitious. Now, granted, I'm granted, I'm not running a marathon on every continent. Just so everybody knows, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get my runs in. We have a we have a, a, a lady that's coming on this trip that's active military EOD. She's going to be running a mile on each continent, wearing the full bomb suit. Um, and then there's some other smaller stuff that's going to be going on, but all of this is in, in an effort to raise, uh, raise funds and awareness for, uh, the projects with Ryan Parrott and the bird's eye view project. That's, I mean, super spectacular and really creative as well. I mean, that's the kind of stuff, especially nowadays in this unique personal media driven landscape that we have to be able to come up with stuff like that and put that energy towards a good cause and not just followers on Instagram is spectacular. For sure. For sure. And this, and this event is a, uh, it's very specific on what we are trying to raise awareness for. I mean, some events are like, Oh, we're just raising uh, veteran awareness. And, but we're actually focusing this event on, on suicide, um, specifically veteran suicide, first responders, mm. everyone that's coming on this trip that's going to be doing the activities are um, either uh, ex-military, current military, or ex or current uh, first responders, paramedics, firefighters, police. And so um, we've been focusing on that. I think it was right about the time we started talking about it, um, Ryan's sniper partner, Ryan Parrott's sniper partner, had just committed suicide. And so he was looking at the projects that he's been doing as a whole and saying, hey, what what can we do to not just to raise awareness, but what can we do to actually help people? Sure. And so that was the genesis of the project as a whole. Well, I mean, that whole list that you named is all the the top of the list for uh, victims of suicide, are they not? Correct. That is correct. Um, statistically, when you're looking at the statistics, I want to say that um, – Suicide on a whole is on a rise is on the rise. Oh yeah. Sure. But when you look at those specific categories, you know, not doing a univariate analysis on it, but doing a multivariate analysis, you start to break it down by age groups and by uh, gender and by job types, things like that. You know, I think the average is still 22 veterans a day kill themselves. And I know that that number amongst first responders, police, firefighters, paramedics, um, is on the rise as well. Not quite as bad as that. So sure. part of the part of the background stuff that everybody doesn't see about this project is the people that are uh, going on this that are going to be doing all of the, the, the skydives, the marathons and the swims. Um, they are actually this is being treated as an experiment. So they're uh, most of them are ex special forces, um, high speed, uh, high impact on their bodies over time. A lot of them are ex uh, military now. And so um, you know, you're looking at suicide as a whole and you're saying, what does the VA do for, for veterans when it comes to suicide stuff? 
Hmm. You go into the VA, they say, yep, you looks like you got some PTSD here, take some drugs. And, you know, it's not a long-term solution by any means. And that's probably why it's the the numbers are so high, even uh, still with veterans. But, you know, all of these athletes have come together. They have spent time in the medical community over the last year. They've been getting brain scans and they've been getting all these different things so that by the end of this training cycle and by the end of this event, they're going to come back together. They're going to get re-evaluated and hopefully they can start putting together things to say, what can we do specifically health-wise for people to uh, assist with this problem that we have of suicide, not just handing them some drugs and saying, you know, good luck, right? Sure. Because there, there's, we're seeing a, a tie between the emotional and mental aspect of, of depression and suicide and the fact that you used to be high speed you, and now you're taking medication and you're not as active as you used to be and now you're not physically where you need to be. And all of that is a perfect storm that comes together that takes people to the lowest point of their life. And next thing you know, they're, uh, they're, they're making a decision that nobody wants them to make. Sure. Sure. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, I just literally last night, I recorded an episode with Jason Maletsky, uh, which will actually air before this one, where he talked about uh, being drawn to skydiving because he was at a point, he was at a really dark point in his life. And right. he said he went out to make his first jump, not giving a fuck if the parachute opened. And he made that first That's jump. And it was, uh, as he put it, a 90 degree left turn. He went, oh, shit. Okay, I'm just going to go big. I'm going to fucking send it because, wow, that was something else. And it changed the course of his life. For sure. Absolutely. I I think um, I used to tell people that skydiving finds everybody at that point in their life when it needs it. They need it the most. Oh, yeah. Um, The cautionary tale I had besides that is, you know, I, I don't know if you've noticed this at all, but the last year, especially. I don't want to say since the start of the pandemic, because um, I don't have specific numbers, but this last year, uh, I personally have seen a, a rise in suicides amongst friends that are skydivers and base jumpers as well. Yep. I want to say, so I was at the bridge in November and a relatively well-known base jumper. I, I don't want to really name names because I don't know if families are you know, really interested in me talking about it out loud, but had committed suicide. And, and most of us that were there at the bridge together knew that particular person. And while we were having that conversation with a couple that was thinking about investing in this trip, they had just mentioned, hey, you know, our son's friend just killed themselves two weeks ago, a seventh Mm -hmm. grader, right? And then I started looking back, you know, this last year, I want to say I've lost 13 friends to suicide. I want to say nine in in December, I counted nine friends in seven months, and not all of them were veterans or first responders. I mean, quite a few of them were skydivers and base jumpers. The cautionary tale I have with that is, you know, you get into skydiving, you know, in his case, he gets into it saying, I don't give a fuck. Right. And now skydiving becomes the drug. Yeah. And over, over that a longer period of time, just like any other drug, it starts to not work like it used to. Sure. It's no longer adrenaline that you're getting from it. You're getting dopamine and that's still fine. But you know, five, six, seven years into it, you started off with not giving a fuck. And now five years later, it's not doing what it used to do. And now you're starting to not give a fuck again. And that's sure. then next thing you know, they're going, Oh, I found base jumping. That'll, that'll get me to where I need to be. And so they start using that as the drug and then they maybe find something else, but there does eventually come a point in time when you have to ask yourself the question, am I treating the symptoms here or am I actually treating the disease? 
Sure. And I think in a lot of cases we're we're too used to treating the symptoms and not used to treating the trying to treat the disease or actually being able to figure out how to treat the disease. Sure. Well, that seems to be unfortunately the culture. And you're right. I have seen similar stuff, although not nearly those numbers. And it's funny because I used to think. Uh, as odd as it sounds, or maybe it doesn't sound odd, I used to think that skydivers were suicide proof. Like we'd figured it out, right? We had the magic solution because we figured out how to live life in the moment and we didn't get affected by that stuff. And just a couple of years ago, uh, I had a guy that was a, a brother, a super close friend uh, named Kevin Love um, commit suicide. Um, and uh, I remember being shocked by it because I just didn't think – I didn't think that was possible and and knock wood I'm lucky in that I've my mind has never gone that direction doesn't mean it couldn't um but it never has and it was a real wake up call to go oh shit I mean this happens to us too Yeah for sure you know it, it's it's uh, uh what did I say the statistics last year were 60 I think it was 60,000 people committed suicide in the US last year Jesus And Christ. so I mean yeah it it it's never going to go away. And I understand that, but there's got to be something better that we can do. Sure. And uh, part of the, part of this process is um, for us is trying to figure out what it is that we can provide when this is all over data wise, that uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to help people in the future. Well, and it's, it's an amazing project on its own, but uh, because of what's driving, it makes it that much more so. And in fact, um, just listening to the story uh, after the podcast, I'm absolutely going to hit you up for information on the Birdman and how I can sit down and have a talk with him because I'd love to, to pick his brain on the podcast and hear more about his journey. Oh, yeah. Uh, he is such an interesting cat, man. I'm, I'm going to turn this off real quick because I'm getting a phone call, but I'm going to put that aside. Um, yeah, he loves to talk about his, uh, his projects. He loves to talk about charities and, um, he's a lot more eloquent than I am. So if you ever get an opportunity to have him on, I, uh, he's, I, I joke around that I've got a face for radio and a voice for silence. Uh, he's got a face and a voice for radio and TV. So <laughs> you'll be able to have a much better conversation with him about, Oh no, man, this has been a child. This has been absolutely fantastic. I think you sell yourself uh, short because uh, you've got a, an interesting story and a, a very um, relaxed way of putting it, which is nice. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the alcohol. I got like five drinks in me already. Oh, shit. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, five drinks from last night, right? So, I got I to say, sh shameless plug for you, by the way. So um, I was thinking about you sent me a note last week about coming on the show and I was, I was getting really excited about coming on. I was like, you know, if you had asked me eight years ago, so for, for a lot of the younger air sport people out there, younger skydivers, younger base jumpers, younger paraglider pilots, all those people, they probably don't even remember blue skies magazine, <laughs> but it was my, it was one of my favorite, like my monthly thing that I love like the most was coming home and seeing the blue skies magazine. And then obviously the cherry on top of Blue Skies Magazine was flipping to the very back at the very end after reading all the rad articles and reading the fucking pilot article. <laughs> and so if you had asked me years ago that I would be, if I'd ever be on a podcast with the fucking pilot, I would have laughed in your fucking face. So this has been a real, uh, this has been a real treat for me. Oh, that's awesome, man. It's a uh, shameless plug. It's funny because uh, all these years later, after all those articles, I still can't believe they'd let me write half of the stuff that I did. <laughs> and I've got all the old magazines and I'll flip through every once in a while. And I, I compiled the book a while back. And as I'm, you know, proofreading it and, and doing all that stuff, I'm going, oh, Jesus, I put this in print. Oh, my God. <laughs> no wonder my articles were always in the back of the magazine. 
Yeah, they, <laughs> I, I just figured that they were anchoring it at the very end, like they, like it was a treat. You get all the way to the end. But no, and mentioning your book, I actually have that book on uh, Kindle. I got it when it came out. And so I, I occasionally go through and flip through it. You wrote another one, too, that I like, too. What was it? The uh, Accidental Stripper? The accidental Stripper. Yeah, yeah, that was... <laughs> That was kind of a mix of both the books because that's how I, I, no pun intended, fell into stripping and then uh, <laughs> and that transitioned into skydiving. And so, yeah, I kind of um, they, they kind of crossed paths in the middle of, of those. But, uh, yeah, that was a fun one to write because it's just as ridiculous as some of the shit that happens in skydiving. Oh, yeah. Some of the stories you hear around the bonfire like those those would be a classic story, I would imagine. Well, uh, talking to Jason yesterday, like I, I told him, you find yourself, and I'm sure you get this as well when you're talking to non-skydivers, telling stories about the stuff that you've done in the sport, not necessarily just jumping, but just in the community, not believing the words that are coming out of your mouth because your stories are yes. just, you're telling them going, this sounds so fucking ridiculous, but it happened. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh most of the, I think there's a reason why skydivers tend to only have skydiving friends is because most of their normal friends don't want to listen to them talk about those stories anymore. Yep. And so, yeah, I could see that happening for sure. Yep. I think that's the the mix of the popularity with this podcast is that most of the people listening are just like, yeah, nobody else wants to listen to these stories, but I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been, a, this has definitely been a treat for me. My, the, the last Blue Skies magazine treat that I had was a hat trick that I pulled. I made it on the cover, but a buddy of mine took a picture. Then the next month I made the cover picture. I shot it. And then the month after that, I think one of our world records was the centerfold. So I had a hat trick there and got, got three blue sky magazines in a row. And that was, that's kind of been the highlight of my career, to be honest. I mean, it was such a great magazine. Laura and Cole. I miss did. it. Oh, me too. I miss it. Me too. I had so much fun writing for them and so much fun reading all the different articles. And because you had such extremes, right? You had Melanie Curtis and then me completely yeah. different ways of, of, you know, telling stories and completely different stories, but it all wrapped up in the same magazine with a set of boobs in the front and fatality reports in the back. Say, and that's what I was going to say is like, you never knew when you're going to flip the page and see a pair of boobs. And it's yeah. like, that's oh, awesome. Well, and I used to get so much shit for it because for as many people as enjoyed my writing, there were that many that hated it because it could get a little <laughs> a little over the top. And I had to remind people, this is a magazine being run by two women who ask me to write this shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, plus, I mean, it's a skydiving community. What do you expect? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So as we wrap things up, um, uh, I, I'm going to have you um, give me any social media stuff, any way of following you, and definitely how to follow this project that you got coming up, as well as the reason you're doing the project. Yeah, for sure. So um, I typically, I like to, I'm going to be posting a lot of stuff during this trip on Instagram. So uh, my Instagram handle is uh, at jump underscore junkie. There's a couple of other jump junkies out there, but uh, look for the look for the one with the ugly mug of me on it and that's probably going to be me and then uh, i would recommend you know if anybody wants to find out really more about the project that we're doing if you go to americanextreme.com there's a box you can click that says human performance project there's a rundown of the people on the team and some of their background and there's also a big part at the beginning that talks about uh you know the the project itself where where it came from and what we're trying to accomplish and uh, I recommend everybody go take a look at that and then follow along on the journey. It's going to be interesting um, just to give a brief rundown of what we'll be doing. We'll be leaving Dallas, Texas to go to Cape Town sometime around the 15th of February. 
And then uh, once we depart Cape Town to Antarctica, the second we jump out of the plane, the countdown stops. We're going to be hitting uh, White Desert, Antarctica, Perth, Australia, Dubai, Cairo, Egypt, London, and then Columbia. And then we're going to be back in Dallas sometime around the 23rd. So it'll be quite an experience. We have our own uh, Airbus 340. So that's going to be pretty rad as well. Dude, that's incredible. For, 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 all, you, for all you pilots out there that, uh, that are jealous uh, that's what we're going to be flying to each continent on. So that'll be pretty cool. That is incredible, man. I cannot wait to follow the progression of the trip. And and uh, um, I think uh, between talking to you, maybe for a round two afterwards and, and talking to the Birdman, yeah. I think it's I think it's an amazing thing. And I can't wait to see how it all turns out. Well, hopefully it'll turn out the way we want it to. Uh, and if not, well, it is what it is. We'll it is what it fun. is, man. Yeah, absolutely. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time, man. This has been fantastic. Thank you for having me on, man. All right, brother. You take care. And there you have it. Another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you, as always, by, and say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com. By Pussfoot. That's right. Head to Pussfoot.com, the Extreme Sports Collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com. Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs, as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com. Check out all the amazing standards, as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now on YouTube. That's right, you're going to have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to YouTube.com and looking up the Lunatic Fringe podcast. It's easy. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had, as well as new and upcoming interviews on video. As always, I am the fucking pilot. Head to thefuckingpilot.net or theprincesspilot.com. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time around.